Well, today is Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to all of you fathers out there. I pray that God blesses you richly on this special day of yours. The fact is, is that today responsibilities given to fathers are increasing in complexity and difficulty. I think it's more difficult to be a father today than it was, say, when I was a young father. And so I really pray blessings on you as fathers and ask God that he might strengthen you and lead you uh, even as you help lead your families. Now, apparently, our jokes as dads are not getting better. And this may be a problem uh, that we're facing in fatherhood today. Do you know that there's a whole category of jokes called dad jokes? Apparently, unlike the jokes that I tell on Stampede Sunday and at the end of the year, these jokes are, well, not all that funny. So in honor of Father's Day, I've come up with a whole new genre of joke telling. I call it dad jokes that are funny. And because I'm a dad and because I tell funny jokes, I need to show you these, you kids especially, so that you can take these jokes and give them to your dads and your dads can become funny like I am. So here's the first one. What's orange and sounds like a parrot? A carrot. <laughs> I love it. What did you call, what do you call a magic dog? A labracadabrador. <laughs> Get it? Did you hear about the actor who fell through the floor? Don't worry about him. He was just going through a stage. <laughs> what do you call crashes his car? A Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> what kind of music do mummies listen to? Mummies, of course, listen to rap music. <laughs> what do you call a pile of cats? A huge pile of cats. Um, mountain. <laughs> Get it? A mountain. <laughs> How many lips does a flower have? A flower has two lips. <laughs> two lips. And then lastly, why did Humpty Dumpty have a great fall? To make up for his miserable summer. <laughs> oh, there are some jokes, kids, that you can take to your dads, and they're going to become funny dads with those kind of jokes. No, 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 I won't tell anymore. No, 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 don't keep asking. It's time for us to get into something serious. But I, I appreciate nonetheless the accolades. As we get started, I'd love for you to turn to Romans chapter 12 and just hold your Bibles open. Romans chapter 12, hold your Bibles open there. We're going to get there in just a moment. And then I'm going to say something again as it's found in Proverbs. In the 1980s, Churches of Christ in North America took some major steps forward when we finally started emphasizing the grace of God instead of emphasizing the need for us to do everything right in order to please him especially with reference to church practices. For a long time, we thought that the Bible laid out a clear pattern of practices for us to follow, for example, in worship practices. But since the 1980s, many in Churches of Christ have taken quite a different tack when it comes to patternistic practices, and I, for one, am really glad this is the case. I think it puts us on a much firmer biblical footing. But there's at least one problem that could potentially go along with our newer perspective. And that's that it may feel like we think God is less concerned with the ways in which we actually do live. In other words, we may feel a little like we can go on sinning and grace will simply abound under this new system of grace. Well, grace may certainly abound because that's who God is. 
but it doesn't mean that he isn't interested in the way we live. But he, he wants us to live well before him in the context of relationship, not because of commands and rules. He wants us to live well because the Holy Spirit is present within us. He wants us to live well because it's in line with his nature and character for us to live ethically and morally and relationally. So if, for example, we're going to make specific efforts not to be racist, we're not going to do it because there's some Christian or biblical rule that says, don't be a racist. It's because being racist runs against the very relationship that we have with Christ. It runs against the nature of God, in fact, because it runs counter to law in the name of Christ, because you can't be a racist and love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Nor can you love your neighbor as yourself and be a racist. So God wants us to live well before him because we love him, to live well because Jesus died, that we might be set free from sin by that act of love and grace on his part. Ethical behavior is to be our practice because that's what a relationship with Jesus produces. In fact, if you love me, which is relationship, you'll keep my commandments, which is behavior. That's how it's supposed to work. Behavior is to flow from relationship to God for those of us who are following Christ. You know, I heard as a young Christian when I was a teenager, friends of, mine's, uh, friends of mine would say, why would you want to be a Christian? You just have to follow a bunch of rules. And I would say that they entirely missed the truth about who Jesus was and why he came. Right living? Yes, Jesus wants us to live well. But rule-based right living? No. Living right, living well as a Christian, is all about the relationship we have with Christ and not the rules he expects us to follow. That doesn't mean he doesn't give us commands. But the keeping of commands is always grounded in our relationship of love with him, not just because there are commands given. Now, this is where wisdom comes in. We've said the last couple of weeks that wisdom is badly needed in our world, and it certainly is if we're going to successfully navigate our way out of this current crisis. Racism, a pandemic, economic crises, moral crises. Our world is just so far from the kingdom vision God has for his creation. If as Christians we're positively going to impact our world, I think it's going to require mountains of wisdom on our parts, and this is certainly the case for church leaders. Wisdom is greatly needed. So this morning, I want to talk about wisdom with reference to lifestyles, and what I'm calling this morning, life views. What is your life view? What are the ideas that should shape the ways we live? And obviously, I think wisdom is greatly needed in framing what becomes the life view of anyone. Now, let me say here that one option for us at this point would simply be to look at the teachings of Jesus about lifestyle or about life view. We could turn to the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, 6, and 7, or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, or we could look at the many episodes of Jesus' dealings with people, we can look at the instructions Jesus gave his followers about marriage or what it means to be religious. And the fact is, that would be really smart of us, and particularly if we decided to actually follow Christ in his life view rather than just giving lip service to it. But another way to frame this, since we're looking at wisdom literature, and specifically this week at Proverbs, is to ask, 
what does a wise lifestyle or a wise life view look like in the book of Proverbs? Wisdom look like in the practice of being lived out. Proverbs includes specific advice and instruction about how one should live in order to live successfully or beneficially. Proverbs also tells us the kinds of temptations to avoid, as this book leads us toward the kind of lifestyle that best puts one in line with God's will for humankind. We would be wise to recognize these ethical guidelines and to seek and follow them, because they foster the life with God that God desires. Now, let me give you an example of how Proverbs fits with a lifestyle of living well. And I want to actually look at this in the, in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 12, and see what Paul does with something that comes right out of the book of Proverbs. So when you look at Romans 12, here's what you see. First, in the first couple of verses, and you can look there right now, verses 1 and 2, you see Paul's challenge for us to be transformed so that we can follow God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then he calls us to humility in verse 3. You can look and see that. And then in verses 4 through 8, he tells us why we should be humble. Because all of us are in the same body, even though we play different roles. Then in verse 9, he gets into the ethical side of being transformed with some quite explicit instruction. But I want to notice just how relational all of this is. In other words, both for Paul... And I would say ultimately for the book of Proverbs, and certainly for Jesus, we don't do these things just because Paul commanded us to do them. We do them because how we live is all about relationships. So much of the point is that being transformed, like in verse 2, or in fact worshiping God properly, like in verse 1, finds fulfillment in the way we conduct ourselves in relationship. Now let me say that again. I want you to get this. So much of the point that's about being transformed, like in verse 2, or in fact, even worshiping God properly, like in verse 1, finds fulfillment in the way we conduct ourselves in relationship. John would say it this way in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. You can't love God whom you've not seen and hate your brother whom you have seen. Now, the fact is that whether we're talking about 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, or we're talking about the Proverbs, or we're looking at Paul's writings in Romans, this isn't easy. I want you to look at verse 9. Love must be sincere, it says. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. We might think that's not so, much, so difficult. But look at verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. He says, honor one another above yourselves. In verse 11, he says, be patient affliction. In verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. In verse 17, he says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. And then the crux of the matter, verse 18 says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Verse 19, don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Then you get down into verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
wow. Just stop for a moment and think about someone you're at odds with. And I don't want you to justify your own attitude and your own speech and your own behavior. Don't try and find a way around Paul's teachings. Don't try and just come up with an excuse why it's okay for you to, to think of another the way that you do. Don't look to get out of it. Just follow biblical Christianity when it comes to your treatment of others. Now, this looks like it can be really difficult to do. But the fact is, Paul's words represent for us a calling, a teaching, ethical and moral instruction that we as Christians are supposed to follow, not because of the rules, but because of relationship, because that's what it means to love another. And so we can't make excuses for why we won't do what Paul calls us to do any more than we can tell Jesus that we're not going to turn the other cheek or pray for our enemies. We can't say, well, uh, that's not my personality type. Jesus doesn't really care what your personality type is. And neither does Paul. The fact is, our ethical and non-ethical behaviors are directly connected to our relationships with God. Meaning that our relationship with God is directly impacted by our relationships with people. And this is what needs to dominate how we treat people and interact with them, not our personalities. By the way, our personalities are supposed to be, if I read Paul right, transformed by the renewing of our minds as we are governed by the Holy Spirit. That's the reason why it's so important that there's a massive emphasis in the wisdom literature and certainly in Proverbs on how we live in relationship with others. And the fact is, this is just like Romans 12. In fact, Romans chapter 12, verse 20, I want you to look there. Please look at it right now in your Bibles. When Paul lays down this key principle, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, which is not easy. Just think about that. If your enemy is hungry, feed him which of course includes an attitude and not just an action. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Again, not just an action, but also an attitude. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Well, Paul takes that comment directly from Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. Clearly, Paul thought, and as it turns out, Jesus thought too, that going to Proverbs was a wise move in learning how to live. You know, Jesus says something in Luke 14, verses 7 through 11, that's really close actually to Proverbs chapter 25, verses 6 and 7. When he tells people not to take the, the honored seats at a banquet, remember this? But to sit in a lowly place, and then when you're invited to the front, you'll be honored. Well, when Jesus says that those who seek find and seek first the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 6, he's actually practically quoting Proverbs chapter 8 verse 17. So Jesus in telling a story or Jesus in giving specific instruction about seeking God refers to the Proverbs in his teaching. Of course, my point is that the way Jesus wants us to live, the way that Paul thought we should treat others, finds its roots and its confirmation in the book of Proverbs. Well, there are numerous places in Proverbs that mention general admonitions about sinfulness, evil, wickedness, hatred, violence, foolishness, ignoring wisdom and instruction about cruelty. 
You know, there's, there's a place in Proverbs chapter six where the writer says that there are seven things that are detestable to the Lord. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. And I want you to notice again just how relational all these instructions are. Whether we look closely or just take a cursory glance, one of the things we find is that the Proverbs are filled with wise instructions about how to live. So wise that Paul chose to quote them, that Jesus chose to quote them. So a while back, I read through Proverbs. And as I did, I wrote down all the places that talked about living well. In lots of places, Proverbs lists the sins that we are to avoid. In lots of other places, Proverbs tells us how positively we are to live. And throughout, if you were to compile all the comments made in Proverbs about how we should live, you would receive very wise instruction. You, you could get a degree in relationality just by reading the Proverbs. So if you ever ask yourself, how does God want me to live? Or how does he want me to handle this situation? Or how does he want me to behave in this relationship? Or what should my priorities be? You could read the Sermon on the Mount like we said before. You could go to Romans chapter 12 and read a passage in there, that a whole section talking about relationality, loving one another. Or you could go to the Proverbs and learn. So what I've done is that I've assembled together a list of 21 specific behaviors that Proverbs tells us to avoid. 21 sins that are cataloged. And these are each mentioned in the book of Proverbs. And you already know, as we've just mentioned, that there's a list of seven detestable things in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. What I'm going to do is I'm going to send this list out to those who are on our emailing list in just a few moments, including all the places in Proverbs where these sins are listed. But I ask one thing of you. Please view the list in the context of your relationship with God through Christ. We don't need a new legalism that binds us. What we need is a transforming foundation for ethical behavior firmly rooted in our relationships with Christ. And I think the Proverbs just happens to give us the framework for that relationship by revealing us the things that God finds sinful. Use Proverbs for instruction, for advice, for knowledge, insight, and understanding. It isn't for perpetrating guilt. It's for positively showing us how to live. It's for making us wise. And so I encourage you to go there. Several of you wrote to me after last week's sermon, and you said that you'd begun to read the Proverbs. God bless you for a great decision. I pray all of us will grab our Bibles. I pray... That we, that we will pray about what we're reading, that we will open our hearts to hear, and that we'll let the Holy Spirit use his word to transform us and shape and guide us as he leads us to live as Christ would have us to live by giving us wise words from the Proverbs, and, and wise words especially in these most turbulent of times. So, read the Proverbs. You're going to be blessed. It's going to help you live a relational life before God, living well before him, but doing it because you love him and you love others. God bless you.